Daniel chapter 4, beginning in verse 28. All this came upon King Nebuchadnezzar. At the end of the 12 months, he was walking about the royal palace of Babylon. The king spoke saying, is not this great Babylon that I have built for a royal dwelling by my mighty power and for the honor of my majesty? While the word was still in the king's mouth, a voice fell from heaven. King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is spoken. The kingdom is departed from you. And they shall drive you from men, and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field. They shall make you eat grass like oxen, and seven times shall pass over you until you know that the Most High rules in the kingdom of men and gives it to whomever he chooses. That very hour, the word was fulfilled concerning Nebuchadnezzar. He was driven from men and ate grass like oxen. His body was wet with the dew of heaven till his hair had grown like eagle's feathers and his nails like bird's claws. And at the end of time, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven and my understanding returned to me. And I blessed the Most High and praised and blessed him who lives forever. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion. His kingdom is from generation to generation, all the inhabitants of the earth are reputed as nothing. He does according to his will in the army of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. No one can restrain his hand or say to him, what have you done? At the same time, my reason returned to me, and for the glory of my kingdom, my honor and splendor returned to me. My counselors and nobles resorted to me. I was restored to my kingdom, and excellent majesty was added to me. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the kingdom of the king of heaven. All of his works are truth his ways, justice, and those who walk in pride, he is able to put down. At Christmas time, I'm fond of saying, especially to the children of our church and my own grandchildren, I say to them, I hope all your dreams come true, but it isn't always a good thing when your dreams come true. In the second chapter, the king dreamed a dream of a golden image. In the third chapter, he built that image and subjected the children of Israel to blasphemy and idolatry, inviting them to worship a God who isn't God. And when they refused, they threw him in a fiery furnace. But God, God preserved them. Now the king has another dream in chapter 4. This dream was a warning. This dream was a dream about his pride and his personal ambition. And God would offer a humiliating solution to the king's persistent problem with pride. 
And because God is gracious and because he is good and because he is kind and because he is supreme in the universe and because he is sovereign in his power and because he has a simple plan for us that we would acknowledge him, that we would obey him, that we would submit to him, that we would receive from him the salvation that he offers to us. He's willing to deal with our problems, with the problems of our heart. D.L. Moody was fond of reminding people that God sends no one away empty-handed except those who are full of themselves. I love that. Nebuchadnezzar was full of himself. And the Lord in his wisdom and in his goodness and in his graciousness allowed Nebuchadnezzar to lose his mind in order in the hopes that he could save his soul. And someone said, it is our self-importance, not our misery that gets in God's way. And so when we look at this passage, I want you to consider once again at the beginning in verses 28 through 30, the king's pride. Look what it says. All this, all this came upon King Nebuchadnezzar. At the end of the 12 months, he was walking about the royal palace of Babylon. Then the king spoke, is this not great Babylon that I have built? for a royal dwelling by my mighty power and for the honor of my majesty. The king sums up the chapter up until this point in verse 28. Remember earlier in the chapter, the king received a dream in verses 4 through 18. And then the king of heaven revealed that dream through Daniel, the prophet in verses 19 through 27. Daniel begged the king to heed God's warning, break off from his sin, embrace righteousness, prove his sincerity by showing mercy to the poor in verse 27. The Lord, the lo loving, gracious God of heaven gave him space to repent. Verse 29. And again, there's this reoccurring principle that takes place in the Bible. Grace precedes judgment. Grace precedes judgment. God warns. He says, please don't do this. Please don't do this. Turn from your sin. Turn away from whatever wicked thing that you might be contemplating. Turn away from it. Embrace the Lord. So the Lord gave him space, and we're reminded of Peter's warning for those who misinterpret God's gracious postponing of judgment. Peter writes in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness. He is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but all should receive or reach repentance. Well, God hasn't done anything to me yet. What's the worst that could happen? I did this and nothing happened. I said this and nothing happened. 
God's being patient with you. God's being kind to you. He's being generous. But the king wouldn't listen. He ignored the repeated warnings. The king admits everything that God said would happen. Verse 28, well, it happened. (laughs) The Bible tells us that God is not a man that he should lie and neither the son of man that he should repent. As hard as this is for some of us to believe, everything that the Bible says about God's salvation is true. The gospel, it's true. The judgment, it's true. The reality of our life and the things that we do in this life and the consequences for those things, it's true. Ron Rhodes writes, quote, God desired repentance, not suffering for Nebuchadnezzar, but Nebuchadnezzar would not bend, unquote. I love that. Because it reminds me that that's what God desires from us. He desires repentance. He desires a broken and a contrite heart. The Bible says that a broken and a contrite heart, he will not despise. What a powerful thought. God didn't want suffering to be the consequence of for Nebuchadnezzar. He wanted repentance, but it reminds us that this is exactly what God wants for me and for you. When God's presence is welcome in our culture and in our church and in our heart, there's no room for pride. The presence of God makes us aware of our true condition. That's why it's such a good thing and an important thing for you to open up your Bible and read. This is why when you're reading your Bible and it's telling you about God, it's not just simply telling you about God, it's telling you about yourself. It's telling you about your true condition. It's telling you what God thinks about you and wants from you. Pride is subtle and sinister. And so when the Bible here talks about the king walking in Babylon, I'm reminded that the Bible is really, truly a tale of two cities. One is the city of Jerusalem. The other is Babylon. You'll remember that Babylon was founded by Nimrod shortly after Noah's flood in Genesis chapter 10, verses 8 through 10, and again in chapter 11, verses 1 through 9. It was home to organized rebellion. It was ground zero for organized apostate religion. It was in Babylon where people decided collectively to rebel against God and disobey God and build a tower to heaven. The king is in one of his royal palaces 
Scholars, archaeologists, and Babylonian specialists tell us that this king was a massive builder. He was a great builder and he had three palaces. And it would appear that one of the palaces that he had was contained within the opulent hanging gardens, which was one of the seven wonders of the known world. And the king is walking almost certainly in one of his palaces. We're not told which one, but apparently it's a palace that gives him a panoramic picture of this magnificent and beautiful city. The king said in verse 30, the, the Aramaic phrase translated, that I have built, in verse 30 where it says, the king spoke saying, is not this great Babylon that I have built for a royal dwelling it literally reads in the Aramaic language, it translates, which I myself have built. It's one of those kinds of idiomatic phrases, phrases that we sometimes use in our culture. When, when someone says to you, who did this? And you say, me, myself, and I. So that you want to make sure that people understand that you're the one who did this. Pride is subtle and sinister. We imagine that we're something apart from God. Pride distorts our view of God, but it doesn't stop there. It distorts our view of others because remember what pride is in its essence. If you were to take it and boil it down to its singular essence, it is the thought that I can live apart from God, that I don't need God, and therefore I don't want God, or we can entertain the notion that there's a God and I, I need him in order to, to be saved or to, to, to be forgiven of my sin and maybe make an entrance into heaven, but I don't need him for anything else. The city was undoubtedly beautiful. He built a 400-foot terraced mound, filled it with tropical gardens, had the most amazing system of, of watering that you can imagine that provide lush tropical gardens, fruit trees, and water. This king is trying to recreate Eden. Even in the ruins of Babylon, the Ishtar Gate and the treasure trove of archaeological wonders. You can see bits and pieces, remnants, fragments of a once vast and sophisticated city. I can't wait. I'm hoping to go to London in the not too distant future and go to the museum and see for myself the Ishtar Gate, which is preserved there. It's a, a gate of bright blue glazed tile, molded reliefs. There are lions and there are bulls and there are dragons. And from the breathtaking view of his own palace, he sees this city. His heart begins to swell with pride. And somewhere, somewhere, somewhere between God's patient mercy and his absolute hatred for sin 
God decrees a judgment. He decrees judgment. He basically says, the period of grace is now ended. The period of judgment will now begin. And we don't always know where that line is located. We don't know where God's grace and mercy all of a sudden fundamentally and dramatically comes to an end. And then God's judgment is rained down. We have many words for pride in our language. We sometimes substitute words like conceit, arrogance, vanity. It always looks very, very unattractive on other people. And then it blinds us in seeing it in ourself. Why does God hate pride? I'm going to suggest just a couple of things. Number one, because it has the ability to cut us off from God and others. I'm going to suggest to you in part because it is the portal of pride that is used to bring sin into the universe. That seems to be what happens in Isaiah chapter 14, verses 4 through 14, if you have a chance to go there, when it recreates the sinister declension that takes place in the king of Tyre. It's a series of, I will do this, I will do that, I will do this, I will do that. The Bible repeatedly says that God hates pride in Proverbs chapter 6, 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 6 and 7, Philippians chapter 2, verses 3 and 4, 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 4 through 10, James chapter 4, verses 13 through 17, over and over and repeatedly it says that he hates pride. He hates it. He, he, he has to deal with it. The psalmist wrote in Psalm chapter 10, verse 11, he has said in his heart, God is forgotten. He hides his face. He will never know. I'm not a big fan of the living Bible, but it actually captures the sentiment perfectly when it says, God isn't watching, they say to themselves. He'll never know unquote. The essence of pride is that God isn't watching. He'll never know. The proud heart convinces itself God's not there. Or if God's not there, he doesn't really see. Or if he doesn't really see, he, he doesn't really care. Or if he sees and cares just a little bit, that his goodness will smother his justice and cause us to escape judgment because we see God more like grandpa in the sense of, I admit it, grandchildren, it's hard for me to punish them. I, 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 do, I let the parent do that. I want to love them. I want to forgive them. I want to overlook everything that they do. And I want to spare them from the consequence. You might think, well, that's a great grandpa. Yeah, maybe a great grandpa, but it's not a good God. That's not the way God functions. You can't separate God's goodness from God's justice. 
And by the way, his mercy never, ever undermines his justice. You see, God has the ability to be both merciful and just. The way that God is merciful and just manifests itself on the cross of Calvary as mercy and justice meet so that justice can be satisfied and God can find a way to forgive you and reconcile you to himself. At the heart of pride is the boast that I can live without God, that I don't really need him. And if you don't really need him, and you don't really want him, then judgment is inevitable. Richard Newton wrote, quote, let me give you the history of pride in three small chapters. One, the beginning of pride was in heaven. Number two, the continuance of pride is on the earth. Number three, the end of pride is in hell. This history shows us how unprofitable it is. Unquote. The Bible makes it clear that God is the giver of all good gifts, James chapter 1, verse 17. In 1 Corinthians 4, 7, Paul warns the immature Corinthian believers, what do you have that you did not receive? If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? Unquote. Paul reminds the Corinthians, what is it exactly that you have that hasn't been given to you? Do you have life? Is there some sort of meaningful life that you have? The gifts and the callings, the strengths that you have, all that you have. Somebody will say, nobody ever gave me anything. Really? Who gave you everything? Who gave you a mind to think with and lips to speak with? Who gave you your health? Who gave you the ability to do what you do? Groucho Marx was famous for saying, I started off with nothing and I still have most of it left. Yeah, we laugh. It's a way to at least somewhat distance yourself from pride. Pride is dangerous because it undermines our faith. Pride is dangerous because it severs our connection with the Lord. And when it severs our connection with the Lord, it automatically creates a mechanism whereby we are at risk with one another. So the writer of Hebrews in chapter 3 verse 12 warns them about having a wicked heart of unbelief. Someone once described pride like a beard. It just keeps growing. The solution, shave it every day. No, I'm not going to do any Italian jokes at this point. And so we see the king's humiliation. Look at this in verse 31. While the word was still in the king's mouth. A voice fell from heaven. King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it's been spoken. The kingdom has departed from you. Before the words could even leave the lips of the king, 
judgment fell. By the way, there are two voices in this passage, verse 31. Can you see them? There's the voice that comes from inside the king's heart. There's another voice that comes from heaven. The voice of pride speaks from the king's heart. The voice of judgment speaks from the heart of the king of heaven. The source of the judgment, the most high God. The message of the judgment, your kingdom has departed from you. The object of the king's pride, that's that kingdom. The thing that he thought reflected his glory. The thing that he thought reflected his glory and his majesty evaporates, disappears. And then in verse 32, it says, And they shall drive you from men, and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field. They shall make you eat grass like oxen, and seven times shall pass over you until you know that the Most High, this is El Elyon, this is one of the names of God, El Elyon, the Most High, rules in the kingdom of, of men. He gives it to whomever he chooses. That very hour the word was fulfilled concerning Nebuchadnezzar. He was driven from men. He ate grass like oxen. His body was wet with the dew of heaven, which means that he couldn't stand living inside. He had to make his way outside till his hair had grown like eagle's feathers, his nails like bird's claws. He looked just like a refugee from the 60s. <laughs> hair, nails, doesn't matter. What did, the God, what did God's judgment include? Let's read it again. The king lost his realm, verse 31. The king lost his relationships in verse 32. When it says, they shall drive you from men. The king lost his realm, his relationship, and his reason. Look what it says in verse 33. They shall make you eat grass like oxen. How terrifying. The Bible doesn't offer a psychiatric diagnosis. Many psychiatrists reading this passage have suggested lycanthropy where a person thinks they're an animal or boanthropy where a person thinks that they're an animal. The specific symptoms include, oh, he's going to eat grass. In 1969, there was a famous song that went, went grazing in the grass is a gas, baby, can you dig it? Can you believe it? It's coming up on 50 years when that song was sung. Grazing in the grass is a gas, baby, can you dig it? I sang that song. I love that song. But grazing in the grass is not a gas. It's a punishment. Now, this is interesting to me. We deserved God's judgment. I won't speak for you. I'll speak for me. I deserved God's judgment and punishment 
because of my rebellion, because of my disobedience, because of my antagonism towards God and the things of God and the people of God and the word of God. But instead of receiving judgment, I received his love and his mercy. God in his grace and in his mercy reached down to me. You see, rebellion is a part of our nature. In Deuteronomy chapter 31, verse 27, Moses says, For I know how rebellious and stubborn you are, Moses told them. If even today, while I am still here with you, you are defiant rebels against the Lord, how much more rebellious will you be after my death? It was Moses' way of saying, you have a problem. And even when I'm with you, you have a problem. I can't even begin to imagine how big your problem is going to be once I leave you. And maybe for some of you, the thing that governed your behavior in part where you had godly moms and dads, you had a, a religious upbringing that at least in some way governed your behavior so that you didn't go off the deep end each and every time. And God was gracious and patient and kind. John Henry Newman wrote, quote, reason can ascertain the profound difficulties of our condition. It cannot remove them, unquote. Reason can help us analyze and access and assess the fact that we have a problem, but reason, reason, reason can never ever make the sin go away. It can never make the guilt go away. It can only attempt to make the sin go away by reasoning that there is no such thing and that your guilt is just a psychological condition that can be removed through drugs, through alcohol, through some sort of therapeutic mechanism so that you can swallow the guilt, the king loses his realm, his relationships, his reason, his resources, and his reputation. Judgment fell on Adam and Eve for their disobedience to God in Genesis chapter 3. Judgment fell on the Jews for rejecting Christ in Matthew chapter 21, verses 42 through 44. Judgment fell on Ananias and Sapphira for lying to the Holy Spirit in Acts chapter 5. Judgment fell on Herod because he insisted on promoting his self-exalting pride, Acts chapter 12, verse 21 through 23. And so they were humbled, some temporarily, some permanently. There's something that I would invite you to do as you're looking at this passage. I would invite you to ask a question. Ask the question, can anything good come from our humiliation? It depends. <laughs> it depends. 
If we're willing to abandon our rebellion against God and embrace repentance and experience reconciliation and restoration to God, that's a good thing. Humiliation can, it can help you. It can help you overcome pride. I was in a hospital room yesterday. And I hate hospitals. I hate them. I hate them because hospitals, instead of, in my worldview, instead of going, it's a place where people go to get well, I see it as a place where people go to get sick, and sometimes even sicker, and then sometimes they die. And I realized that that was pride. The hospital doesn't exist in order to make people worse. Some of you may have had an experience like I had that you go to the hospital and things don't get better, they get worse. Maybe you had a different experience where you go to the hospital and you got better. Humiliation can make you worse or it can make you better. In the ancient world, the Jews took great pride in their buildings and in their temple. In Ezekiel chapter 7, verse 24, the Lord says, therefore I will bring the worst of the Gentiles. He's talking about Nebuchadnezzar. And they will possess their houses. I will cause the pomp of the strong to cease and their holy places shall be defiled. What does this mean? God is willing to crush their pride by bringing their worst fears to come to pass on Jerusalem and he's going to bring someone even worse than them to execute the judgment. And sometimes God will use people to execute his judgment. See, some of you might be thinking, I am willing to receive humiliation if I know it comes from the Lord. But what if it comes from your wife? What if it comes from your husband? What if it comes from your children or from your friends? What if God uses a hand and fingers that you disagree with to crush you? Humiliation can serve as an opportunity to repent. Do you remember in Luke chapter 15, the story of the prodigal son? He finds himself with his father's inheritance. He goes away. He wastes his inheritance. He becomes so hungry that he envies the pig their food. And according to the Bible, he comes to his senses and he goes, what am I doing here? What in the world is happening here? At least in my father's house, I can keep kosher. And he returns to his father and he rehearses a speech. Can suffering and dishonor and shame serve as sufficient motivation to abandon pride or repent of pride or walk away from pride. It's been my experience, for some people it is, but for others it is not. 
Do you realize that there are some people who are so proud that they would rather die than obey God? That was the condition Jonah found himself in when he was on a ship headed for Tarshish. And they basically said, you know what? We, we've, we've, we've rolled the dice. We've discovered that God's punishing us and judging us. And uh, we found you here at the bottom of the ship. Who are you exactly? I'm a Hebrew prophet. Now tell me what you're doing. I'm running from God. What is our problem? I'm your problem. I'm in rebellion and disobedience to God. And guess what? If you throw me overboard, all your dreams will come true. See, so you're laughing, but you understand. In other words, God's judgment will be postponed against you, but it will be realized by me. Do you understand what he's saying? He understands that being thrown into the Mediterranean is going to result in his death. You don't get thrown off of a ship in the middle of the Mediterranean and expect to live. His expectation wasn't to live. It was to die. And he's thrashing around in the water. God sends a great sea creature to swallow him and deliver him to Nineveh, where he is once again reminded by God that he has a job to do. And every once in a while, in our rebellion, in our disobedience, God will cause his protecting love to swallow us in events and circumstances that we wouldn't wish on anybody. But he's going to deliver us to the place where we belong. Humiliation can serve as an opportunity to deal with pride. It can serve as an opportunity to repent of our sin. It can serve as an opportunity to leave the place of rebellion and to embrace the place of forgiveness and restoration. And so that's what it says in verses 34 through 37. Look what it says. And at the end of the time, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven and my understanding returned to me and I blessed the most high. I praised and honored him who lives forever for his dominion is an everlasting dominion. His kingdom from generation to generation, the time of desperation, loss, humiliation is about to come to an end. It's about to come to a close. In this verse, the king describes his conversion. Look what it says. And at the end of the time, what was it? It was the time of the judgment. What did he do? I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven. The time of restoration begins when we take our eyes off ourself and our circumstances and we are willing to look up. The question again that we should ask our king here. Nebuchadnezzar, why did it take you so long? Why didn't you just look up right from the start? Why did you continue to gaze into the abyss? Pride, pity, bitterness, unforgiveness. He said, I lifted up my eyes. By the way, I think it's important for me to tell you something. That God's grace allows us to look up. Even his grace and his mercy 
gives us the ability to go, you know what? Lord, help me, strengthen me. Give me the ability to look away from this and to look to you for strength and guidance. I, 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 I recall in 1 Samuel chapter 2, verse 30, it says, for those who honor me, I will honor. John chapter 6, verse 44, and then again in verse 65, the principle is there. Those who honor me, I will honor. Jeremiah twenty-two twenty-three. am I a God near at hand, says the Lord Jehovah, and not God afar off, verse 24. Can anyone hide himself in secret places so that I do not see him, says the Lord? Do I not fill heaven and earth, says the Lord? In other words, the the idea is that he is the God who is everywhere. He fills the heaven. He fills the earth. He's willing for you to glance in his direction. Rest restoration begins when you look up. Corey ten Boom said, if you look at the world, you'll be distressed. If you look within, you'll be depressed. If you look at God, you'll be at rest. I love that. The world depressed within, excuse me, the world distressed and within depressed at God at rest. And so what follows? A restoration to sanity. Praise and blessing to the Lord. The king calls upon the most high. His understanding returns. This results in praise and honor to the Most High. Again, this is El Elyon in verse 34, supreme in his position, that's rank, sovereign in his power, that's rule. And this God has a simple plan. Acknowledge the sovereignty, admit the sin, accept his salvation. It's true in every generation. Admit your sin. Accept his sovereignty and his wonderful simple plan that your sin can be forgiven in Christ Jesus the Lord. It's interesting to me. El Elyon is mentioned for the first time in the Bible in Genesis chapter 14. Do you know what the circumstances are? It's in verses 18 through 20. You know the story of Abram, whose nephew Lot and his family are taken. And Abram, who's going to later become Abraham, will pursue the enemy and overcome the enemy and defeat the enemy. And he returns to Jebus, where he meets a priest who carries bread and wine. And the priest is also a king. And the priest who's also a king is named Melchizedek. And this priest who is a king named Melchizedek says in Genesis chapter 14, Blessed be Abram of El Elyon, a Gentile king who has a vision and an understanding of a supreme God who is sovereign who is powerful, who is above all and above all else. He says, blessed be Abraham of God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God 
most high, same word, who has delivered your enemies into your hand, unquote. This is the first revelation of the sacred name. And Abram was impressed with the name. He gave a tithe or an offering to this mysterious figure. And the Most High divided the nations to the Gentiles whom he separated according to the sons, first of all, of Adam and then of Noah. In Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse 8, he is the possessor of heaven and earth. When it says that he's the possessor of heaven and earth, that means that he is sovereign in heaven. He is sovereign on the earth. And in verse 35, it says, all the inhabitants of the earth are reputed as nothing. He does according to his will in the army of heaven. That means among the beings who dwell there and among the inhabitants of the earth. That includes everyone who dwells there. No one can restrain his hand or say to him, what have you done? When you read that verse, I am left with the impression that Nebuchadnezzar is in fact saying, if I can't stop him, and I can do whatever I want, usually. It makes perfect sense that you can't stop him. If I can't stop him, you can't stop him. Here is the king, who is the king over all. At least he thought so. He is a king who, when he says something, it happens. If he rewards you, you're rewarded. If he punishes you, you're punished. But this king says, no one can restrain his hand or say to him, what have you done? Now again, we know that everyone and anyone can say to God, stop what you're doing. Anyone could say, why have you done this? I'm not going to ask for a show of hands, but I'm going to suggest that each and every one of you at some time in your life has said, Lord, what, what exactly are you doing? You understand that this is probably a bad idea. Have you ever offered counsel to God, who is the ruler of heaven and earth, as if he needed your input? Ultimately, he will do whatever he wants to do. We might be left with the impression that since the inhabitants of the earth are reputed as nothing, that they are in fact nothing, but nothing could be further from the truth. The Bible says that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. The Bible says that he loves us, that he's looking for a way to forgive us and reconcile us. It is true that God punishes sin, but it is also true that God offers mercy to the sinful. Because God's justice isn't changed by his mercy. So what does it mean that no one can restrain his hand? It means exactly this. Once God purposes to do something, it will be done. In Isaiah 14, 27, we read, The Lord of hosts has purposed, and who will annul it? His hand is stretched out. Who will turn it back? Job says, who can turn him 
back Job 9.12. Proverbs 21.30 makes plain, no wisdom, no understanding, no counsel can avail against the Lord, unquote. There is no understanding or counsel that can undo the plan of God. We have complete assurance that God will do all that he has planned and all that he has promised to do. So in verse 36, it says, At the same time, my reason returned to me, and for the glory of my kingdom, my honor and splendor returned to me. My counselors and nobles resorted to me. I was restored to my kingdom, and excellent majesty was added to me. Everything that was taken away in judgment was returned. Reign. Relationship reason, resources, they all came back. And I want to remind you of something. God did it sovereignly. He sovereignly restored the king's sanity, the king's kingdom, the king's reputation. The Lord can restore physically, financially, spiritually. He can restore after we've experienced great trials. Psalm 23, David said, he restores my soul. Do you remember what happened to David? He experiences great tragedy and great judgment, but a great restoration. The Lord Jesus says to Peter, after you've suffered a little while, the God of grace who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself restore you. This is what Peter writes in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 10. After you've suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, establish you. He's not just saying this as a theological nicety in order to encourage and comfort people. He's the recipient of this re restoration. Tell me something. Is that you? Are you in need of restoration? Do you need to be restored in your thinking, in your heart, in your marriage? Do you need to be restored in your friendship and relationship with the Lord? Admit your sin. Repent. Turn to him immediately. Look up. Don't delay. Do it now. Nebuchadnezzar says in verse 37, I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise, extol, honor the king of, of heaven, all of whose works are truth and his ways, justice, and those who walk in pride, he's able to put down. Just quickly, I want to draw your attention to that. His ways just. I want you to think about it. And the person who's saying it. His ways just. This would include God's judgment on the king. Do you understand what's happening in the text? The king is saying, what God did to me, what God did to me, I deserved it. God did exactly what was right. It's so hard for us to say that. What the Lord is doing 
It's exactly right. No, I'm going to remain proud. Wait a minute, those who walk in pride, he's able to put down. Well, maybe, maybe he can put you down, but he can't put me down. <laughs> Doesn't that sound like an invitation to judgment? One last question. Was Nebuchadnezzar saved? A lot of people think so. Because he acknowledges the true God. A lot of people think so. Because he really changed. Was he truly saved? Well, if he was... It was because of the patience of God and the grace of God and the mercy of God. But I'm going to suggest to you it was because of one other thing. Because there was a Jewish man who in spite of all of the indignities that had been heaped upon him and his people, told the king the truth. Even when it would cost him everything. Who do you suppose took care of Nebuchadnezzar during this time of great mental and emotional distress? Would it shock you if I suggested to you that almost certainly it was Daniel? It was Daniel who looked out for him, who comforted him, who cared for him, who preserved him. The king wants us to learn from reckless self-exaltation. And I think that that's exactly what Daniel wants and what the Lord wants. How can we be certain that God will judge the human race? Because in Deuteronomy chapter 7, the Lord warns the people to utterly destroy the enemies in the land. When the Lord your God delivers them over to you to be destroyed, do a complete job of it. Don't make any treaties or show them mercy. Wipe them out. And there are the, the proud people who will say, I can't serve a God like that. Why would a God order innocent people to die? And the answer is because a God who orders these people to die means that they're not innocent. All have fallen short of the glory of God. There's none righteous, no, not one. And God wants to paint a picture that in dealing with sin, you have to deal with it utterly and ruthlessly and completely the Lord's judgment on sin is inevitable and unavoidable. But here's the other thing. It's according to his own timing. God's judgment is always fair. It is always just. God's judgment will be universal. Everyone will face it according to his timetable. But the Bible says we're a stubborn people. We know what's right, and we still decide to do what's wrong. And so the Bible says this. In order to look clearly at what God is doing, we have to stop looking within, and we have to start looking up. We have to evaluate our condition based on what the Bible says, not what the culture says. We can turn from our sin. We can turn to our Savior. 
we can cast our gaze to heaven knowing that God loves us and will forgive us. We're going to have communion in just a moment, but I also just want to remind you. Then when Melchizedek greets Abram, he, repeat, he, he initiates, if you will, this word, El Elyon. It was a Gentile king who was also a priest who knew that there was a God in heaven and he offers the elements of crushed grapes and crushed grains in tribute to Abram's victory. Do you think that's a coincidence? I don't. There's a type and a picture of humility. A grape, in order to humble it, you have to crush it. Grain, in order to eat it, you have to crush it, unless you eat whole grains and you see me after service. But most of the time it's crushed. We're going to have communion here. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, when we think about these elements, of juice and grain that are crushed so that we can have them. Lord, clearly it's a type and a picture of Jesus, the Lord, who is bruised for our iniquity, crushed for our sin. Lord, whose shed blood gives us the ability to experience your grace and your mercy to experience forgiveness and wholeness and wellness and reconciliation. Lord, I pray that even as we have communion now, that Lord, even though our eyes might be closed and our gaze might be down, Lord, I pray that at least in our hearts, we would look up. We would cast our gaze towards heaven. Lord, we would remember what Jesus has done for us on the cross of Calvary, how he has given us his body, shed his blood, so that we could experience forgiveness and wholeness and wellness. That even now, Lord, we could offer our bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. That, Lord, even as we praise you, as we partake of these elements, that we will praise the God on high who is sovereign, supreme, the God who's able to save us. And so, Lord, again, thank you for Jesus. Thank you for his broken body. Thank you for his shed blood. Thank you, Lord, that we have a way to walk away from pride and embrace forgiveness and experience hope. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's partake.